Bible reading today is on page 192, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice is the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all the land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat of your, you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening, when the sun goes down, on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning return to your tents. For six days eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Thanks, Shana. Morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. My name's Mark, if we haven't met, and I'm on the staff team here at Trinity Bay a day a week as a minister in training. And my main role is looking after the evening service, which meets in the, the hall just next door. Uh, good friends of mine got engaged a couple of months ago, uh, Katie and Michael, their names are. Now, the engagement itself wasn't a particular surprise. They'd been together for quite a while, and it had been on the cards for quite a while. What was a surprise was the effort that Michael went to making the engagement happen. Now, you might have seen this on the news a couple of months ago. Got a couple of photos there. Um, it was quite an intricate plan. So Michael somehow arranged to have a couple of police officers pull him over while he was driving with Katie. Got the officers to pull him out of the car and take him over to their car and act like he was in trouble. One of them got Katie to come out of the car and was explaining to her, okay, that there's something quite serious going on here. This... This is really, your life is about to change a lot. 
and she was getting really worried, and it, and it gave Michael enough time to get the ring and to sneak up behind her and get down on one knee. And the policemen were, had body cameras or something on, so they managed to record the whole thing. So there's a, a video of the whole thing taking place, which Michael posted up on Facebook afterwards. Video went viral, made the news, they got interviewed on the Today Show, and all, all in all, a very memorable proposal. I'm sure in 60 years' time, when they're an old married couple, they'll, they'll look back and they'll still have as strong memories of that day then as they do today. Well, in this passage that we've just read, we see God's people being called to remember the past so that it might shape the way that they live in the present. And one of the big challenges that we have when we look at a passage like this is thinking through how it applies to us in a very different context today. The circumstances that the Israelites were dealing with in the book of Deuteronomy were very, very different to what we're dealing with today. But the big idea of this passage is still exactly the same for us today. And that's that our remembrance of the past and our assurance for the future should drive us to joyful generosity in the presence. So how about I pray before we get into this passage? Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for your words. We thank you for the book of Deuteronomy and that it's as relevant for us today as it was to your people thousands of years ago when it was first written. Uh, we pray that as we look at it this morning that you'd be speaking to us through it and helping us to see how it points us so clearly to the great joy and the great hope that we have in you. Amen. All right, let's get our bearings before we get started. Deuteronomy is Moses' final speech to the Israelites. So they've been freed from Egypt, they've wandered in the desert for 40 years, and now they're about to go in and take the land that God has promised to them. And Moses is pleading with them not to forget God when they enter this land, but to choose life by following God and staying faithful to him. In chapter 16 here, we're in the middle of a long list of instructions that Moses gives the Israelites about what life in this promised land ought to look like. There's a particular focus on guarding their faithfulness to God rather than the gods of the neighboring people. And in chapter 16, Moses reminds them of three annual festivals that they were to celebrate. Firstly, there's the Passover where the focus is on Israel's remembrance of the past. They're to celebrate the Passover each year so that they always remember how God rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. When God freed them from Egypt, each family was to sacrifice and eat a lamb to not leave any of the meat left over until the next morning. And they were also to make bread without yeast as they'd be required to escape quickly the next day, and so they needed to make the bread quickly and eat it quickly. And in the first four verses of chapter 16 here, God calls the Israelites to do exactly the same thing, to celebrate the Passover each year by doing exactly that. It was to be a reminder of what God did for them so that future generations would know and remember. Now, I'd say the closest equivalent we have today to that is Anzac Day where we remember all of those who fought for our country in wars. If you've ever been to an Anzac Day dawn service, you'll know that it's a very powerful and symbolic event. 
Uh, you got the, the minute silence, the lowered flags, the last post getting played. It's a very moving and symbolic occasion. And just like Anzac Day for us, the Passover was to be central to Israel's national identity. By celebrating it, they were to be continually reminded of what God had done for them in the past. And it's no coincidence that during a Passover celebration, centuries after this, an even more significant sacrifice and deliverance happened. And that was Jesus' death on the cross, which really was the fulfillment of everything that the Passover stood for. Instead of freedom from slavery, the cross bought freedom from something even greater, sin. And instead of just for one nation, it was for everyone. Sin is the biggest problem in the world because it drives a wedge between us and God. Sin is when we reject God as the Lord of our life and choose to be our own boss instead. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. Now, Perhaps this concept of sin is something that is new to you or you're still wrestling with it a bit and you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with being my own boss? And that's a good question to ask. It's a very fair question to ask. The Bible explains that we were created by God to live under him and enjoy a relationship with him as sons and daughters. And so by refusing to live with him, we're turning our back on that relationship I think if we're being honest, we can all look at our lives and think to ourselves with everything that we've said and done, I'm actually not that great a boss. I've made bad decisions. I've hurt people. And sin is so embedded in us, so central to our nature. Even when we try to live our lives God's way, sin is still there pulling away at us. It's a problem that we're helpless to solve. And that's why Jesus' death was so important. Because he's fully God and fully human, Jesus was the only one who could stand between us and God and take our punishment, make us right with God. Whenever we reject God's rule, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And at the cross, God put himself where only we deserve to be. Jesus' death was the fulfillment of everything that the Passover represented. It was the ultimate act of deliverance. In fact, Jesus is really the fulfillment of all of the ceremonies and regulations that Israel were given by God in the Old Testament. Some of you may, have, may know or have heard of a guy called Mark Peterson. He used to be the music director at Trinity City and a number of the songs that we sing at Trinity Bay are ones that he's written. I was at a conference or a meeting or something that he was at and we got chatting towards the end and it turned out we lived near each other. So he asked me if, if he could get a ride home with me. So I said, yeah, sure, let's, let's go. And as we were heading to the car, I thought to myself, you know what? I've got a few of his songs on my phone. It'd be kind of funny if I just played, all his, played his music while I was driving him. It's one of those things that seemed funny at the time. Actually, saying it out loud, it seems a lot less funny, but... You know how it goes. So I was walking to the car, and then I thought to myself, how stupid would that be? Like, I've got the real Mark Peterson in the passenger seat of my car. Well, I'm just going to play his music. Like, I can imagine someone asking about that afterwards and saying, oh, 
you, you were talking to Mark Peterson? You had him in the car? What did you talk about? Oh, no, we didn't talk about anything. I just played his 2012 album and we just sat there in silence. It'd be ridiculous. Um, it's why, as important as these festivals were to Israel, we don't celebrate them anymore. Because at the time, these ceremonies and regulations were Israel's way of knowing God, remembering him, drawing near to him. And for us today, it's through Jesus that we do that. If you want to understand God, look at the cross. God knew the worst things about me and you and still went to extreme lengths to bring us back to him. Now, just as the Passover was a reminder to Israel of God's deliverance, so the cross is for us today. That's why Jesus, before he died, told his disciples to eat and drink in remembrance of him, of his body and blood poured out for them. It's a tradition that's been kept ever since then, sharing together regularly in communion, remembering his death in our place. And we'll do it together this morning in a few minutes' time. Now, the difference between Israel then and us today is the assurance for the future that we have because of Jesus. Israel's future wasn't exactly bad. They were about to enter a great land that God had promised them. In verse 15, they were promised that there'd be good harvests in that land. But their long-term future depended on their obedience to God. For us today, our assurance for the future was sealed when Jesus died and was raised back to life. Because he died, we know that if our trust is in him, then our sin is paid for. We're reconciled to God. And because he was raised back to life, we know that we'll also be raised to live with him forever. What God did through Jesus in the past gives us every assurance in the future. If you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, then your future is secure. Now, Israel's remembrance of the past was supposed to motivate them to live generous lives in the present, which brings us to the Festival of Weeks and the Festival of Tabernacles from verse 9 onwards. These were both established as celebrations of God's provision for Israel. The Festival of Weeks was to occur seven weeks after the first harvest of grain was collected, and the Festival of Tabernacles, seven days after the entire harvest had been collected. And you'll notice that the two festivals had quite a bit in common. Uh, they were to be times of joyfulness and rejoicing in God's provision to them. They were also to be times when the whole community was included together. It wasn't just a party for the rich and for the powerful, but for everyone, great and small alike. Right down to the foreigners, servants, people who otherwise would have been marginalised in society. These festivals were also to be times of remembrance. In both festivals, there was to be a clear emphasis on looking back at what God had done for them in Egypt. Uh, for the Festival of Weeks, verse 12, they were told to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt. 
no doubt remembering this would make them think twice about excluding people of a lower social standard, a, a lower social standing from the festival. Now, it's not mentioned in this passage, but if you were to cast your eye back to Leviticus chapter 23, you'd see that during the festival of tabernacles, the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters for that week. And this was so that they would be reminded of their escape from Egypt. These festivals were also to be times of generosity. Nobody was to appear empty-handed before the Lord, we see at the end of verse 16. They were all to bring a gift in proportion to the way that God had blessed them. Now, this wasn't them paying God back so much as responding in thankfulness to what they'd received. When I was a kid, I used to get $2 of pocket money each week, and I used to sort of save that up. And then towards the end of the year, as Christmas approached, I tried to do a few other odd jobs around the house, like wash the car, mow the lawn, that sort of thing. And I tried to sort of save up a bit of a a stockpile from which I would buy Christmas presents for all my family members. So I'd try to sort of aim for about $100, which I'd split between however many people I had in my near and extended family. Now, I think that was a good thing. It was a, an age and income appropriate way of me being generous as a 10-year-old or whatever I was. But you wouldn't say my mum and dad were gaining financially out of that arrangement. Like, I can't imagine mum going to work the next day and saying, oh, Sandra, I've got this great thing going on at work at home, right? Get this. Every week I give my kid $2 and at the end of the year, without fail... He gives me a medium-sized packet of lint chocolates. Like, I, don't, I don't think she was going around saying that. But I was just doing what seemed right in response to what I'd received. And centuries later, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, calling for generosity of a similar nature. Uh, I've got 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 on the screen and in your leaflets there, uh, where he asks them to consider what Jesus had given up for them. He says... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now he's referring to spiritual riches rather than material riches, but the emphasis on generosity is still the same. And in the next chapter, he tells them that they should give money only when they were able to do so with a cheerful heart. So Chapter 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So even though we live in a very different context to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, the principle is still the same. We're to respond with generosity to God's generosity. Now, we're never going to be able to match God's generosity But that's not the point. We're faithfully responding to what we've received. Now, as far as how we do that, using our money is probably the big thing that comes to mind. But our money isn't the only way that we can be generous. If we've put our trust in Jesus, then we've made him the Lord of our whole life, which means that everything in our life is at his disposal. Our possessions, our gifts and abilities, our time, our energy, everything. 
there's nothing that we should be keeping out of God's reach. And there are lots of ways that we can be generous with what we have. Serving at church, being available when people need help, being open and bold about our faith. And there's a cost to all of these things, which is what makes it generous. Money is important to think about, though, because it's very personal. It's very close to our hearts, which makes it a big test for our generosity. Can I just say, before I go any further, this isn't designed to, to make everyone give more to church. Like, I'm not going to be checking the figures at the end of the month and seeing if the sermon worked or anything like that. In fact, I have to say, given everything that's gone on at Trinity Bay this year with the, the staff turnover that we've had, the fact that we're in as good a financial position as we are is really testament to the generosity of so many people here. So definitely be encouraged rather than feeling nagged by this. I just want us to, to help us think through generosity in a way that is consistent with what the Bible says. Now, there are a couple of reasons, I think, for why money is so personal to us. Firstly, there's a, a real sense of entitlement that comes with it. Uh, there's a good chance that for those of you who are working, that the job you're in, uh, you frequently have long hours, difficult people that you work with, um, unpredictable situations, perhaps even unpredictable job security. And so when the pay comes into your bank each fortnight, it's definitely well earned. Second reason money's personal is that what we spend our money on so often reflects where our hearts are at. As Jesus said, our money does follow our hearts. There's a good chance that if you were to run your eye over your budget or your bank transactions over the past year, what you'd see would be a pretty good indication of where some of your passions lie. It's certainly true for my budget. Money is personal, which makes it a really good test for our generosity. Being generous with our money is a bit more complex for us than it was for the people back in Deuteronomy days. And there are lots of causes that we could be putting our money towards and all sorts of different ideas on how much money we should be giving. As a church here at Trinity Bay, we rely on the giving of our members to keep going and growing. And there are lots of other good Christian organisations as well which rely on financial support. Uh, you've got ES, which is run to train and equip Christians on campus and get them sharing the gospel with friends who don't know Jesus. Uh, City Bible Forum, which does the same thing, essentially, in the workplace. Uh, Bible College SA, training the next generation for gospel ministry. And then globally, there are organizations like um, CMS, uh, Compassion, Open Doors, which again, depend on the generosity of Christians. And not only that, there's lots of secular organizations as well that are doing great work and are well and truly worthy of support as well. It's important, though, that however much we're giving and whoever we're giving it to, uh, that we're doing it cheerfully, not just out of obligation. Don't know, I'm sure you've had this happen before where you've said hi to someone and they've replied with good thanks, which is not an appropriate answer to hi because it yeah, you know. Um, but I think it comes just because we, that's how are you going, good thanks thing is just so central to our communication. It's just such an instinctive way that we speak to everyone. Like I might be walking along and I see Pete walking towards me and I think, oh, 
in a monologue, I'm thinking to myself, yep, Pete's going to ask me how I'm going and I'm going to say, good, thanks, because that's what you do in Australia, even if you're having the worst day of your life and someone asks you how you're going, you say, good, thanks. So Pete's walking towards me and then Pete tricks me by saying hi instead and I say, good, thanks. And then either I don't notice that I've said the wrong thing or I'm too embarrassed and I just keep walking because it's just, it's just a robotic response like that. And we don't want our generosity to be like that. Generosity needs to begin in the heart before it gets to the wallet. It should come from a heart that is overcome with thankfulness for what God has done in the past and assured of the future. That's why if you're still here working out where you're at with God, we don't ask for your financial support. Uh, We'd love you to know the joy of a relationship with Jesus and be totally on board with what we're doing as a church. And then decide in your own heart how you'd like to support that. There'll be people here who are already giving very generously and there'll be people who uh, might be in difficult financial situations and giving financially might not be a possibility at this point. The take-home message here isn't give more money. It's to live each day remembering that if your trust is in Jesus then you're saved and loved by God. And let that overflow into your life. So how do we work out how generous we're supposed to be? What's the right amount of money to spend on a holiday? What school should I be sending my kids to? How much should I be saving? Now, I don't have the exact answers to any of those questions. Here's one way you could think about it, though. How comfortable would you be with other people seeing your budget? Seeing how much you earn, how much you give, who you give to, how much you spend on holidays, clothes, all of that sort of thing. Now, it's quite a confronting question because, like I said, money is very, very personal. Um, But we can actually get a lot of clarity by thinking through how comfortable we would be with other people seeing how we spend it and how we give it. I've talked to people who do this. They, um, they meet up with other people on a regular basis and they just put it all out on the table. They show their budget. Uh, they show who they're giving to. They show all their bank transactions. Um, possibly there are people here that do that as well. And I really admire it. It's a really bold commitment to being accountable in generosity. And I also think that we have a responsibility as a church, and by that I mean on a staff level, to be faithful with the financial support that we receive. It's all well and good for us to ask for generosity, um, but for those who give financially, you should rightly expect us to be using those resources in a way that honours God and is serving his purposes for the world. And I strongly believe that the direction we're heading in as a church is doing that. It is faithfully honouring your generosity. Personally, I'm really excited about what's coming up in the future at Trinity Bay. I'm I'm looking forward to Cameron starting here next year. I think he'll be a a really great fit for the church. He's going to bring great energy and great leadership skills. It's also going to free up Colin to head down south sooner rather than later and start a church in the Woodcroft area and take the gospel to to people who need to hear it. And on a Trinity network level, there's some really encouraging things happening, some really exciting stuff 
in the pipeline for the next few years. There's great plans to, to start more churches around Adelaide and to really get the gospel growing strongly in Adelaide. And I hope that for all of our regular members here, uh, that you're excited and passionate about the mission that we're on about as a church, the direction that we're heading in as a church, uh, that your generosity, whether that's financially, serving, or whatever else, that it's done with a, a joyful heart. Our generosity really begins with knowing in our hearts that through Jesus, we're saved from our sins and our future is completely assured. If we're reminding ourselves of this, then it's going to go deep into our hearts and it will overflow into generous lives that honor God. With our money, our time, our conversations, our energy, everything. And that will be evident to those around us. Our remembrance of the past and our assurance for the future should drive us to joyful generosity in the present. How about I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Uh, we thank you that uh, we can look back in the past and see incredible things that you've done, that we can look back and see that you're willing to send your son to lay down his life for us so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could come into a right relationship with you. And we pray that that would be the, the thing that drives us, that every day we'd be looking back to what you've done for us in the past and we'd be assured of our future, that you'd be helping us to live each day knowing that with, despite all the uncertainties in life, all the things that we're not sure about, the one assurance that we do have is knowing that if our trust is in you, then our future is completely, completely secure. We pray that that would drive us to live generously in the present, uh, that we'd, we'd be really laying down our lives for you, uh, that we'd be giving